Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. All the lives being sacrificed, what is it good for? I see no benefits of this war going Mm. on, except for maybe revenge. The mother of an Israeli soldier calls for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's Tuesday, February 13th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, truce talks are underway in Egypt as Israel continues its assault on Rafah. Also, in the new YA graphic novel, Lunar New Year love story, love is a lion dance. You believe that you're actually looking in the lion. So two people have created a single entity with a single heart. And that in itself is a perfect metaphor for teenage love. That's coming up in about 15 minutes. But first, we've got two perspectives on the war in the Middle East. Israel has been shelling Rafah, where more than a million displaced Gazans are crammed into camps and makeshift shelters. Supplies are running out. Civilians are dying, and aid agencies say people have nowhere to go. Gaza health officials announced 133 new Palestinian deaths in the last 24 hours, as Israel says it's pursuing Hamas militants and freeing hostages from hideouts in Rafah. Just 200 miles away, in Cairo, officials from the U.S., Israel, Egypt, and Qatar are meeting for negotiations. But Hamas is notably not there. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Tel Aviv and joined us for an update this afternoon. He spoke to Scott Tong. So these officials are meeting today in Cairo. Is there a framework, an outline for a potential ceasefire on the table? Yeah, Scott, we don't know the details, but we do have a general sense. It looks like the the main things they would be talking about is a ceasefire of around six weeks in length, Mm. and then additional Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners would be released by the two warring parties. Now, it's hard to say if this is going to be successful. Both sides are interested in talking. Hamas would actually like a, a ceasefire that could be extended and lead to a permanent ceasefire. Mm. and then the end of the war. Um, Israel may be less interested in that, but it very much wants to get its hostages back, still more than 100 hostages uh, being held by Hamas. So both sides have things they want, uh, and they're coming back for another round after a few weeks uh, that we saw in Paris uh, a few weeks ago. Mm. So there is interest in trying to do a deal. Now, in practical practical terms, how does... Hamas weigh in through the negotiators from Qatar and Egypt? Like, how do they make their voices known? 
Right. So, uh, you know, Hamas is not there in Cairo right now. They've been going to Cairo and talking to Egyptians regularly. And if this is a repeat of what we saw a few weeks ago, uh, these these parties that are meeting today will, will work out a plan and then it will be delivered to Hamas. And it's still a very cumbersome process because Hamas has leadership uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, in Qatar, uh, and then the Gaza leadership, which is hiding uh, underground at this point. Mm. So it took about a week or more to get a response from Hamas. So whatever comes out of Cairo would then presumably go to Hamas. It will take a few days for Hamas to to, to, to digest this and, and try to get all their leaders on the same page. So it, it, it's not going to be a quick process. Yeah, I understand. Not an easy Zoom or, you know, however they, they get those people together. <laughs> uh, meantime, Israel is talking about, of course, a ground offensive in Rafah. That's where more than a million displaced Palestinians are trying to survive in these horrid conditions we've heard about. How quickly do neg- negotiators have to work before that offensive happens? So I'd, I'd, I'd put two time frames on that. One is just this, the sense of these horrible conditions of, of all these displaced Palestinians uh, in, in southern Gaza. So the sooner they can get a ceasefire, the sooner you might see a little bit of relief in this humanitarian crisis. Now, on the other hand, um, an Israeli offensive or an attack doesn't seem imminent in the sense that even Benjamin Netanyahu, the mm. Israeli leader who is who is uh, uh, calling for this preparation, has said we, we need to find a way to evacuate the civilians. The civilians are not leaving right now, or maybe just a teeny tiny trickle of them. So I think we'd have to see a pretty mass movement of Palestinians out of southern Gaza before we might see um, an Israeli offensive. So presumably there would be um, some heads up or you could see it uh, uh, coming into focus. Yeah. Greg, as you mentioned, what they're talking about could be a ceasefire of several weeks. The ceasefire we saw back in November lasted less than a week. So this could be a broader deal where we're talking about any sense of whether one side or one party at the table here you know, wants this deal more than the others? Well, Hamas certainly wants a longer ceasefire. And in the, the six weeks we're talking about, and Hamas's uh, is notion is that this would be phase one, and there could be a phase two and a phase three. And at some point, it becomes it becomes permanent, and Israeli troops leave Gaza. Now, the Israelis have their, their own interest, as I mentioned, getting the hostages back. Um, the real sticking point is Israel says it wants to destroy Hamas. It does not want Hamas to ever rule Gaza again. Ham- the Hamas leaders are, are don't accept that. They could expect to continue to, to operate and to, to run Gaza. Mm. So that's going to be the real sticking point. Um, again, there are things that we could see happening here— uh, in a limited uh, short-term way, but getting to a full-fledged end of the conflict, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. it still seems a way off. Very quickly, Greg, what's the role of the U.S. delegation there? Well, the U.S. has played a very pivotal role. It's been a strong supporter of Israel. Uh, The Biden administration wants to send more weapons, but it's also now giving some criticism, saying Israel should not carry out this offensive in Gaza, in in southern Gaza, unless they can figure out a way to to move civilians out of harm's way. And Pierre's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Scott.
We're going to stay in Israel now and hear from a woman there who's calling for an end to the war as her son fights in Gaza. Stick around. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. We've been hearing calls from around the world for a ceasefire in the Middle East. That's less common inside Israel, where many people say they don't want the war to stop until hostages are released and Hamas is destroyed. But there are Israelis who want their country to end the bloodshed, including a group of mothers whose sons and daughters are fighting in the war. Michal Brody Baraket is one of them. Her son is deployed in Gaza, and she founded an anti-war group called The Mother's Cry. She talked to Robin Young about it. Well, first to your son, uh, 21, we understand, in a special forces unit in Gaza. Mm -hmm. What is your sense of how he's doing there? Uh, Well, I talked to him uh, yesterday for a few minutes. It was like a miracle because I haven't uh, spoken with him for a long time, for a few weeks. Uh, he sounds fine. He's mm-hmm. not uh, under fire day and night, not at all right now. So uh, I'm a little relieved. To, I was relieved to hear that yesterday. Yeah. But still, I'm uh, looking forward to his uh, going out of Gaza. Well, so this brings us to why you are protesting. At some danger to yourself, and we'll get to that, but... Is it because you don't want your son in a dangerous war or because you're seeing the images of Palestinians who are, you know, being brutalized by these bombings with nowhere to go um, and you don't want your son to be a part of that? I mean, why are you protesting? Well, of course, first of all, as a mother, I'm worried about my son. Then it's clear to me that there is no military solution here. And this is a political problem. And all the lives being sacrificed uh, in both sides, uh, I cannot understand what is, what is it good for and what is the goal. I see no benefits of this war going mm. on, except for maybe revenge. After the massacre the Israelis were going through, now it mm. might make them feel better to make a mega massacre uh, to another people. I can't see any solution or anything good coming out of that. Well, and you know your government, led by Netanyahu, uh, says this isn't you know retribution, this isn't punitive, this is to get Hamas. 
And, you know, playing devil's advocate, their point of view is that Hamas has undermined every peace solution. You say that this is a political uh, situation. Many are saying that there needs to be a two-state solution once and for all. Um, Mm -hmm. But your government and many Palestinians would point out it's been Hamas that has undermined that solution historically. It's Hamas uh, that doesn't want Israel to exist. So what do you say to people who say that's been tried and it's failed and your message now equates to Israeli surrender to terrorism and Hamas that harms Israel? No, I, yeah, I, I don't want any surrendering to terrorism, not at all. I think that Netanyahu, we shouldn't forget it, that Netanyahu was um, delivering money for Hamas and strengthening it for years. We know this to be a fact that Netanyahu's plan, and he said it, was that he would funnel money to Hamas so that he would keep Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank divided. Mm -hmm. And he has said that that was his strategy. Yes, that's right. So uh, I don't believe him. Uh, uh, well, I don't, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very bad thing to say, but I don't believe my own prime minister. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he deals with the situation in a responsible way. Uh, when he says that our goal is to destroy Hamas completely, this is not a realistic goal. This is a demagogy. And we can see um, since the ground invasion uh, three months ago or so, 232 Israeli soldiers were killed in Gaza. And uh, many, so many Palestinians, most civilians were killed, as we know, around Mm -hmm. 30,000. And Hamas is still strong. Mm. Look, you know you've received death threats. Uh, Police have refused to issue protest permits. They've tracked and arrested protesters. Our colleague Daniel Estrin uh, reported you pushed to the ground by police while protesting. Mm -hmm. Look, what is your sense of where this goes? It has been an unpopular opinion. Are you feeling that change? I mean, at all, where does this go? It's very easy to be desperate, to feel desperation these days for people who think like me. We are very few. Uh, We strengthen one each other. And every day there is one or two more, I think, uh, people who start to see the situation the way we do and ask themselves questions uh, the way we ask. Well, you know, there's other mothers' groups. Uh, There's Mothers of the Fighters. They've called for Mm -hmm. intensifying the Mm -hmm. war. They're also mothers of soldiers in in Gaza. They would think that you are undermining your own son who's Mm -hmm. at war. Do you ever doubt what you're doing? I do. I do. Uh, I also try not to talk with my son about what I do. But um, I think that if you talk uh, with soldiers, you can hear the soldiers are psychologically broken. Mm. More and more soldiers do start to think differently and ask whether what they do there is really worth and what, what, can it, what is the goal of them being there? What mm. is the goal? More and more soldiers start to ask these questions and not have a, an immediate answer. Mikhail Brody Barakat uh, calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war as her son, a soldier, is currently in Gaza. Michal, we wish you uh, uh, 
safety. We wish your son good health. Uh, we wish you peace. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, Lunar New Year celebrations often overlap with Valentine's Day. So no wonder where our next guest found inspiration for her graphic novel, Lunar New Year Love Story, Love and Lion Dancing, when we return. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash NPR. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day, celebrated around the world. The Lunar New Year, this year the Year of the Dragon, began last weekend. Both come together in this year's calendar, but also in a new graphic YA novel by two superstar kids' book creators. Jean Luen Yang is the writer behind American-Born Chinese, the best-selling graphic novel-turned-TV series. Lei Win Pham is the Caldecott-winning illustrator of over 100 children's books, including Bear Came Along and the Princess Black series. Together, they create sparks, fireworks, in Lunar New Year Love Story. NPR's review calls it gorgeously rendered, a rich tapestry of complementary worldviews. It centers around Valentina, a Vietnamese-American teen living in Oakland, California, Though named in honor of Valentine's Day, she's haunted, quite literally, by what she thinks is a family curse and inability to love. But, dear reader, they don't call this a love story for nothing. Again, the book is Lunar New Year Love Story. Joining us, author Jean Luen Yang. Hi, Jean. Hey, thank you so much for having both of us. Yes, here. illustrator Lei Wen Pham is with us as well. Welcome to you as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Oh, It's just such a beautiful book. And Jean, start... By helping us with some of the things we're going to learn about in the book, first of all, the Lunar New Year. Just remind us what that is and who celebrates that. Lunar New Year is the new year of what Asians and Asian Americans call the old calendar, the Eastern calendar. And it's a really big deal. For Asian cultures, it's often the most important holiday on the calendar. Yes. And part of the celebration is a lion dance. Lei Win Pham, Win, just remind us what that is. Many have seen it, this beautiful, undulating, huge costume of a lion with people underneath it. Tell us what that means. 
So lion dancing is found in almost every Asian festivity from weddings to massive parties to, of course, New Year celebrations. And it pervades all the, the different cultures in Asia. So there's always a different version depending on which country it is that you're referring to. But for our particular book, we use mostly the, the Chinese version of lion dancing. And it is actually the perfect metaphor for teenagers falling in love. So mm. bear with me for a second. There are two people underneath a lion costume. And when they're dancing together and they're performing it, the dance correctly, they perform as a single animal. And the drums that you hear that accompany lion dancing always, the drum is actually the beat of the lion's heart. Mm. And if the dance is being done well, then you forget that you're looking at two humans and you believe that you're actually looking at the lion. So two people have created a single entity with a single heart. And that in itself is a perfect metaphor for teenage love. (laughs) Oh, it's one animal, one heart is the goal because it's hard. You have to take dance lessons and I'm looking at page 102 and there's Valentina with a young man and they are practicing. They don't have the costume on yet. They're practicing with kind of these hoops and he might have his hands around her waist and she may be the head (laughs) and she may be in front of him. Who knew that a large part of teenage courting could happen underneath the the lion costume (laughs) because it's so physical, so romantic, so beautiful. But before we get to that, Jean, tell us about your main character, Valentina, who loves love and, in fact, has these uh, mystical figures. One is a little, well, she thinks it's an angel, and he says, no, it's Cupid. People make that mistake all the time, (laughs) an angel. She has these ghost-like characters that are with her in this kind of the beginning when we meet her, when she's just loving Valentine's Day and making Valentines. In the beginning, this figure presents himself as a Cupid. She calls him Saint V., And then later, as her own relationship with love changes, that figure changes. Mm. That Cupid figure in the beginning turns into like a much more threatening, ghostly figure towards the middle of the book. And this might be a little bit of a spoiler, but at the very end, we meet the, the true version of that character. The hero's journey there is, I think all of us, in order for us to enter into a proper romantic relationship... We have to have a relationship with love first. You know, we have to figure that out first. The the idea of it. And I don't think it's a spoiler because I don't want young people to think, like, really, St. Valentine is just a mean specter? No. (laughs) This was the rough passage of love. And so to young people who might be listening, it's a false image if it asks you to give it your heart. But when I have to ask, is this something that's, a popular idea. You you are of Vietnamese descent. This idea there may be specters, a sweet baby Cupid or a false Saint Valentine trying to steal your heart, pretending to be love, who might be circling you. I think in all Asian cultures, all ancient cultures, actually, there's always the idea of ancestors and specters and uh, the entire idea of Lunar New Year, even. Um, Families set up altars at home to coax these happy spirits, these ancestors, to come to bless their house. So the the idea of of spirits, I don't think they're perceived in the way that Western eyes might look at the situation. So the spirit can be benign, the spirit can be frightening. What I love about the spirit of St. Valentine is that he represents both like an Eastern and a Western idea 
of something that's haunting you. And the entire book contains themes that cross over between East and West, East and West, because so many young Asian Americans today, they straddle that constant cultural line. And it's lovely to be able to bring those two worlds together rather than constantly differentiating them. And in the book, there's a lot of themes explored. It's not just the love between two kids. It's the love between generations, between the grandmother and and her granddaughter, between best friends, between her love with herself. And all these different things are, I think, are things that um, any teenage kid, regardless of their background, is going to be tackling these days. But, you know, I have to say, Jean, it, it is a romance novel, even though the characters for a long time have trouble expressing love. To me, romantic things are, for instance, when one of Valentina's suitors is talking to her about the dancing, and he says, Val, you have to plant your feet. And she says, what? Well, have you ever noticed when we move from horse stance to bow and arrow stance, most people wobble a bit? It helps if you pay attention to your feet. You've got to be stable to be strong, you know? And I'm like, oh. There's an underlying message there. What were you trying to say to young people? I am in real life raising four kids. My wife and I have four kids, ages 11 to 20. And I have noticed that technology has this way of maybe making the next generation afraid of human connection. That's one of the things that I hope readers will get out of this book, is that human connection is a great way to get hurt. You know, we break each other's hearts all the time. But ultimately, the rewards of love are worth the risk. So planting your feet, being firm in your decisions and being firm in the ways in which you approach love. It's not something that our technology-obsessed culture encourages, but I think that's the way to live a fulfilled life. Yeah. Um, I just have to ask because, yes, there's all of that wonderful advice and information, but at heart it is a romance novel. There are some kisses. We happen to hear, uh, as you two were talking (laughs) before you came on, that you somehow, I, I don't know what, it just was out of context, I know, but that you taught a huge group of young people how to kiss? What? Oh, multiple groups. Multiple groups of young people. We've been doing a book tour, and we've gotten to visit these schools, and Wynn has an entire presentation about kissing. Oh, we have, can you tell? Absolutely. There are three parts to the kiss, to any romantic kiss. The first part is the gaze. So you look across the room at someone, your eyes lock with that person. If that person looks away in any way, you're done for. No connection has been made. Mm. If that person's gaze stays locked on yours, you know you have an in, you know you have a connection and you're able to move over. The anticipation is the second part of the kiss. When both partners are feeling it. They, they can feel that the moment is going to happen and the electricity becomes palpable between the two of them. You can almost feel it in the room and you feel those shivers down the back of your neck. And I've been warning the kids to do this. It's a great idea to gently put your hand on the person's cheek or on their neck just <laughs> to allow that electricity to travel from your body to their body before the actual kiss happens. And then the last part of the kiss is the actual kiss itself where the, the lips connect and it becomes a moment. And across the board with almost all the students, depending on the age they were at (laughs) with all the students, they all agreed that the second part, the anticipation, is the part that's the best about the kiss, which is not the kiss itself. And I find that really interesting that that's where the romance actually lies. It's in the anticipation of things. And they're right. They're absolutely (laughs) right. 
That is a Lewin Pham, a illustrator for the new book, Lunar New Year Love Story, the author, Jean Luen Yang. We thank you both so much, and, and um, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and happy, happy Lunar Valentine's New Year. Day. And New Year. And happy Lunar New Year. <laughs> yeah. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by James Master Marino, Jill Ryan, Lynn Menegon, and Emiko Tamagawa. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Micaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. No deep thinking here. Planet Oat oat milk is rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. Visit planetoat.com for more. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.